1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Finally, brothers, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, and that in this manner no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, he who rejects this instruction does not reject man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you. Yourselves have been taught by God to love each other, and in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. As we prepare to look and study and read God's word this morning, I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer. Let's give this time to the Lord. God, you are a holy God. You are light and in you there is no darkness. Your love and you have shown your great love toward us through your son Jesus. Sending him down here to earth in the form of man. Living, dying, atoning completely for our sins at the cross. He was buried, he was raised according to the scriptures on the third day. He ascended and now he awaits a second return. This time to judge the world in righteousness. Father, we thank you that you have expressed your love toward us also in sending your spirit. You poured out your love when you gave us the Holy Spirit to dwell within us. The Holy Spirit is instrumental in helping us to walk holy paths. Father, we pray this morning that you would continue to sanctify us, that we might please you in our brief stay here. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Holiness matters to God. Why don't we say that together, just kind of get us in the frame, because I'm going to repeat that a few times. That's probably... One of the big ideas this morning. Holiness matters to God. Let's say it together. Holiness matters to God. 
As we look at the text in chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians, before we get there, connected to what we're going to read here in Thessalonians 4, I'd like you to, to, to turn just briefly to the book of Revelation. I, I was drawn to chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. And, and if you know your Bible, you know Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, if you have red letter edition, lots of red letters. Christ is speaking to whom? To the churches. Right? He's speaking to the churches. Seven churches in Asia, Asia Minor area. And, and I was drawn to just a few. I'm not going to go through all of them, but there were a few churches in particular. In Revelation chapter 2 verse 4, he's speaking to the church at Ephesus. And he says some good things. And then he says, I have this against you. And we know in reading the text that they had left their first love. We see that as he's speaking to the church at Pergamos, he says, there's some things here that, that seem to be good. He says, but I have a few things against you. Notice one of the things that he has against them there is that they hold to the doctrine of Balaam, there was, which was practicing sexual immorality. Notice also his instruction to the church at Thyatira. Some good things are mentioned, but he says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. And here at the church at Thyatira, he says, you allow Jezebel to teach and seduce my servants to commit what? Sexual immorality. On two different occasions, he brings this forward under the umbrella of, but I have this against you. It seems like committing sexual immorality is not just something that Paul is talking about here in his epistles, but Christ himself is talking to the church in Revelation 2 and 3. And on at least two occasions, he brings forward what he has against them. And it has to do with sexual immorality. I was also drawn to Revelation chapter 3, the last church, the church at Laodicea, probably one of the more familiar churches, one of the more familiar passages that gets quoted as we think about those seven churches. And he talks about their lukewarmness. What does he have against them? They're neither hot nor cold. I'd wish they'd be one or the other, but they're lukewarm. He says, I will vomit you out of my mouth because you're lukewarm. There was a glimpse of just these four churches in particular in Revelation 2 and 3. These are four churches that, that did some things well, but they also received a rebuke. They received a, a reprimand. The Lord Jesus himself unveils what he has against his churches. In Ephesus, he had a significant item against them. In Pergamos, he has a few things against them. In both Pergamos and Thyatira, the few things he speaks of deal with this, this some form, some element of sexual immorality. In Laodicea, the issue is lukewarmness. He's ready to vomit his church out of his mouth because they're neither hot nor cold. So why look at Revelation 2 and 3 as a starting point, as a launch pad? I mentioned these examples here in, in Revelation 2 and 3 because they are letters 
to churches, first of all. This is exactly what we're looking at in Thessalonians 4. It's a letter written to the church at Thessalonica. The letter is addressed, in fact, at the beginning to the church of the Thessalonians. I also bring up Revelation 2 and 3 because these churches, the majority of them, had some things that needed addressed by the Lord. Things that were not pleasing to the Lord. Sexual immorality was addressed on at least two occasions there in Revelation 2 and 3. Things that stood out against the church. Sexual immorality was happening in the church. It's a common theme. It's a theme that's brought forward by Paul in 1 Thessalonians. Seems as though the church at Thessalonica dealt with some similar sexual immorality problems. A third reason I bring up Revelation 2 and 3, because of its mention of lukewarmness, it connects to the text today. And that the Lord desires His church to be holy. The Lord desires His church to be holy, to live holy lives. We need to remember He's coming back one day for a pure bride. Is He not? That's who He's coming for. Lukewarmness is an abomination to the Lord who bought the church, friends. He bought the church with His blood. There's nothing lukewarm about our Savior. You want to see what Jesus thought about wishy-washy, lukewarm living? We need look no further than the cross. The cross. He died that we might live eternally with Him. He paid our debt completely. He never went halfway. Praise God, He never went halfway. The cross represents a fully devoted, steadfast love toward his own. There's nothing lukewarm about our Lord and Savior. Another reason I bring up Revelation 2 and 3 is because the Lord does mention here some good things about these churches. They had some positive characteristics, many of them, and the Lord puts them forward. And I was reminded of how often Paul, in his letters to the churches, he's writing about issues or problems, uh, i.e. 1 Corinthians, right? You read 1 Corinthians and he's addressing what seems to be one problem, one trial, one challenge after another. Even here in Thessalonica, Paul brings forward in chapter 4 a subject matter that's needing attention. Sanctification. And to see this young church had some great things going for her. In chapter 1, it represents and tells us where they had come from. It tells us what they were known for. How they had received the word of God in the midst of affliction. And they had received that word of God with joy in the midst of affliction. This was a church that had turned to God from idols. And had turned to serve the living and true God. This was a church that was not only serving the true 
and living God, but this was a church that was looking forward into the future. They were waiting for the sun from heaven to appear. They were eagerly waiting for Christ to return. Thessalonica had a great testimony in Macedonia, in Macedonia and Achaia. Those are regions in that Mediterranean area. They were known outside of their area of Thessalonica. What were they known for? Well, the scripture says in chapter 1 that their faith toward God had gone out. It says that the word of God had rippled outward with great effect. And yet as the epistle begins to close, Paul charges this new church with his own, but I have this against you. You see, no, he doesn't quite say it that way, the same way that Jesus says it in Revelation. But I do believe what we have here in Thessalonians chapter 4 is Paul's own version of church. This is what I have against you. This is what I've seen. Holy living matters to God and church at Thessalonica. Here are some things that aren't lining up with what it is to live a holy life. Friends, can't we say the same things amongst us here today? God has called us still, yet today, to live a holy life. And yet as we look at our own lives in Christ, if we're honest, some of us don't like to be honest because we know it's painful and it hurts and it's ugly, perhaps. But perhaps the word this morning can do the work that's intended to do in our lives. It always does that intended work if we allow it to do so. It's a sharp word, it penetrates, it cuts, it divides. It judges the thoughts and intents of our heart. It lays us open and bare before the one who sees all things. That's the word of God. And Paul is putting the word of God before the church at Thessalonica. And he's saying, you've got some good things going for you. But in order for you to walk as God has intended you to walk, here are some things that need to be taken care of. Here are some things that need to be corrected. Here are some things you need to turn from. Church, you turn from idols to serve the living and true God. And you're waiting for the sun to appear from heaven. Praise God you're doing those things. But I've got something else for you to, to look at very carefully. In fact, the words that he uses up front are urge and exhort. Plead. He's pleading with them to listen to what he has to say as the Lord has given him instruction about his church at Thessalonica. Having been rescued from idols, it seems that their lives had been engulfed in sexual immorality, which we need to understand and consider that these were practices not uncommon in the worship of pagan gods. This was how they lived. It's how they once lived. Paul is writing this letter from Corinth during his second missionary journey. You can read about this in Acts 17, his journey to Thessalonica. Having visited Thessalonica, he goes on to Berea, to Athens, and then to Corinth. And it was here during his 18-month stay 
that Paul wrote this first epistle to the Thessalonians around 51 A.D. That's sort of the context of the letter and the writing of it. But I want you to notice something that God did here in the beginning of this church. If you turn to Acts 17 for just a moment. In Acts 17, I want you to look what the Lord does. The Lord did this. This is His doing. It says, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He reasoned with them not of his own intellect, not of what he had, his own good opinion. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. He's the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. I want you to notice in that text, it says for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And you know, as we look in the course of history, we see men like William Carey and Robert Morrison and Donoram Judson, missionaries who had a heart for God, a heart for his work. And each one of those men spent approximately seven years before they saw their first convert. Seven years. And I'm sure there are other stories that you're aware of and know of, missionaries, perhaps longer before they saw their first convert. God's grace is poured out abundantly in Thessalonica. Three Sabbaths, friends. Three Sabbaths and the Lord worked His word on the hearts of the people, turning them away from their idols, turning them to God, establishing His church. Three Sabbaths. The word of God is powerful. On the surface... It sounds simple, what we're talking about, but if you're in Christ, you know that living out Christianity is more difficult than it sounds. It's not easy. It's simple. It's simple. We can read it, and it seems so simple. But those of us in Christ know that it's difficult. Paul is writing this section of Thessalonians 4 to encourage, rebuke, and remind these dear ones. That's what he calls them in chapter 2. This church had become dear to him even in the small amount of time that he was there. He's writing to encourage, to rebuke, to remind these dear ones that holy living matters to God. Holy living matters to God. There are many admirable traits of the Thessalonian assembly. But Paul submits here in the text, by the Spirit, it's a trumpet blast of warning. He's shining his light. He's poking, if you will, on something in their lives that is not consistent with the way a follower of Jesus is to live. And he's speaking about it. Praise God, he's speaking about it. 
Do you realize that in today's world we live in, I'm talking about even the church, there are a lot of things that are here that a lot of folks don't want to talk about. Let me be more specific. There are a lot of things here that address and talk about sin in our lives that people don't want to talk about. They're afraid to talk about them. Why? They're afraid that people won't come back next week. They're afraid that some people might get their feathers ruffled. They're afraid that the offerings might not continue. Friends, the instruction we have here is hard instruction. It's difficult instruction. But it is much needed instruction. Not just for Paul speaking to Thessalonica in the first century. It's much needed instruction for hope in Christ right now, 21st century. Because the issue that we're talking about and the issue he brings forward under the umbrella of sanctification, holiness. There seems to be some things clogging the pipe, if you will, of growth, of nourishment, of moving in the direction God would desire for us to move. And friends, sin always does that. He's shining his light on this issue that was contrary to God's holiness, sexual immorality. You know, God really does care how his church lives. He, he really is concerned himself about our daily conduct. He's concerned about that daily. He's not okay with habitual sinning. He's not. You know, I heard the story of the, of the man who stopped by the, the gas station. And he was in an area he wasn't accustomed to being in. And he stops in asking for directions. And the gas station attendant graciously crafted a, a map of the area showing where he was and showing the road that he needed to go to get to his destination. And he wrote it all down and he, he gave it to the man to take with him. I want you to imagine that man having received the map, having received his directions, the man taking that piece of paper and just crumpling it up right in front of that man. Crumpling it up, throwing it away. And then having the audacity to turn around after he does that to speak to the gas attendant once again and ask him once again for directions. And the gas attendant would look at him, I'm sure, with this look of bewilderment. This look that would, if he was to speak words, would say, are you a fool or what? And yet how often, as you think about that, do you go to God and his word seeking directions for living, you read it, and yet your life reflects the very action of crumpling up the instructions, throwing them in a waste can. Your witness doesn't match what you profess. You're asking or you're seeking, but when that book gets closed, 
you're going out and you're living contrary or as if you hadn't received those instructions. You've been given God's word and you've been given God's spirit. And a person that is equipped with the word and the spirit has been given all that he needs for navigating life's road. His life has meaning and purpose. And his life looks quite unlike anything that the world offers. It's called a set-apart, sanctified, holy life, friends. God's will is that you live a holy life. Not that you know information about what it is to live a holy life. His will is that we would live a holy life. He's not interested in hearing his children simply talk about it. His heart is that we would operate in holiness. And I believe that's, that's the heart cry here in, in Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. You're walking with God and pleasing him in some regard. We see that's evident. If you read the first epistle of Thessalonians, you know that's part of what he's sharing. Yeah, you, you have been doing some good things, church. You've been pleasing him in your walk in some regard. In those areas, the church is excelling. Paul exhorts, keep on going. Keep it up. And he holds up the word of God and his commandments as the authority. And he reminds them what God is after. Not some of your life. Not all of it, but this arena of sexual immorality. What we do with our bodies. No, he's interested in once all of our life. Sanctification work that God desires penetrates the chambers of every corridor in your life. There are no exempt places. You, know, you might remember the story in the Crusades when they were, uh, they were hiring mercenaries. Remember the story? Well, before, because this was holy war, before they would go into battle, they made the mercenaries get baptized. Remember the story? They'd get baptized, and they'd go underwater, and they'd get baptized. But the one thing that didn't go underwater was what? You remember? Their sword. Their sword remained above water. Symbolic of the fact that, well, okay, I'll, I'll do this, but by God, I'm going to do whatever I want with this sword. How many of us operate the same way? We have, maybe there's one compartment of our life. There's one area of our life. Maybe it's money, it's our finances. Maybe it's this arena that Paul's addressing here, immorality of some kind, something that's hidden, something that's below the surface that no one else around you can see. And you're willing to do whatever needs to happen except this one thing. What is it for you? It may be something here this morning that some of you are holding on to. Some of you have not allowed the Lord to have control of this arena, this area, compartment of your life. We need to understand, when God talks about holiness, when he says holy living matters to God, there are no exempt places within us. He desires all of what we have. And he deserves to have everything that we have. Because remember, friends, he bought us. We're not our own. These bodies are not our own. 
These bodies, if we are in Christ, in fact, they are temples. Temples where the Holy, Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, let's, let's emphasize that. This is the Holy Spirit resides in these temples. Sexual immorality, what's brought forward here in the text. The way one uses and stewards his body. This, friends, this matters to God. This is no small thing that he's writing about. Holy living matters greatly to God. The preface to chapter 4, 1 through 8 is a prayer. And I'd like to read that because it connects. Look at the three verses prior to chapter 4. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all. Just as we do to you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in what? Holiness. Before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. He's praying for these things. So that, verse 13, may establish your hearts blameless in holiness at the coming. All of 1 Thessalonians is under the umbrella of the second coming of Christ. That's one of the big themes of the letter. And then you get to chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus. These are some closing words. Finally then, in the last place, before I close, let me, let me make sure this gets spoken because it needs to be spoken. And these closing words are not just bolted on to the end. They are highly significant. Not to be taken lightly. Urge, in fact, urge and exhort. Pleading. To what end is he urging and exhorting? Notice that the text says that they received something. They received something. What did they receive? They've been taught how it was necessary to walk and to please God. They've been taught how it was necessary. Not an option. How it was necessary to Please God, to walk with God. How did they learn it? What did they receive it from? Well, they received it from Paul and company, but they received it through the scripture. We read that in in Acts chapter 17. He reasoned with them from what? The scriptures. Why these things are so. In fact, you look at Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. It says, as you know how we exhorted Comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his own children. To what end? Verse 12, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. The ESV and the NASB translation really brings out the the literal translation of verse 1. It says, just as you received from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you are doing... You see, right here, he's pleading and urging them to do something that, at least in part, they were already doing. So it's almost like, keep going, keep going. And this phrase, more and more, that you may abound more and more. 
more and more. That, that phrase ought to capture what we're to be about in this life, as long as we have this earthen tent. This more and more idea, abounding more and more, excelling more every day, growing. The terms in the scripture, growth, flourishing, nurturing, abiding, growing. Those are terms that ought to characterize a follower of Jesus Christ. And here in verse 1, he says, Just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you're doing, do so more and more. So Paul is urging and he's exhorting the brethren to walk in what they've been taught. Oh, this is so, this is the simple part. We see it on the page. We hear it through the ear, right? We hear it, the word spoken. But it's the walking out what gets taught. That we sometimes, if not many times, stumble in. Amen? Taking what we hear, taking what we read, because we got to remember, this is not just something that has to do with hearing a preached word on Sunday. No, this has to do with when you open the Bible up tomorrow morning in your own time. By the way, I'm hinting that that's something that you ought to do. Okay? Monday morning, when you open the word and you study God's word for your own soul, feeding yourself... You ought to read it in such a way that you walk away from the word, now asking, how then can I walk this out, Lord? Lord, help me walk this truth out. Do we do that when we read God's word? Do we do that when we hear God's word preached? You see, the church at Thessalonica seemed to be doing some of these things already. But even the things they're doing well, Paul, I love this. Paul is still encouraging them to do more and more. In fact, the passage just just after this, look at 9 and 10. He's talking about their love. Concerning brotherly love, you have no need I should write. You're, You're doing this. You've been taught by God. You're doing it. But in verse 10, indeed do so toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. Not just those who live and occupy these walls, but love everybody who's in Christ outside here. Be an impact. Shine your light. And what's he say there in verse 10 at the end? That you increase. We urge you, brethren, you increase more and more. You're doing it, but keep doing it more and more. I love that. That's called encouragement. The things that you're doing, the things that you're supposed to be doing, the Lord also encourages us, friends. This is not all a bonk on the noggin saying, get it, get it together. Come on. No, the Lord also encourages us. And he sees the things, the labor in the Lord that you're doing is not in vain, right? He sees the things that you're doing for his work, for his kingdom. And he says, keep going. But there's also words that need to be spoken that are not words of encouragement per se, but words of warning. And you're making progress in some of these areas. But you need to... You need to understand, you need to have this light shining on this one aspect, at least here in your life, that needs some renovation. (laughs) It needs some some major work. You know, the challenge of living the Christian life is, is not obeying what the Lord says the first time. Sometimes that first time might be simple. Okay, I'll do that. It's it's tomorrow. And it's the next day. And it's the next day. And it's the next day. And it's the keeping on obeying. It's keeping on going, walking in the holy path that he's prescribed for his saints. 
Paul is recognizing that they're doing some things well as it pertains to walking with God and pleasing him. And he says, keep building, keep strengthening, keep growing, keep flourishing in these things. Keep going. And then you get to verse 2. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. You know. You see, we urge and exhort you to abound more and more in what you've received, what you've been taught. Why? For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. You see, Paul says you're well aware of what we gave you, friends. You're well aware. This is not good advice. This is not some self-help tip. What we gave you was the word of God. And the church at Thessalonica stands out because they received the word of God, not as from men, but they received the word of God as it is in truth. The word of God. And I believe because they received it in that way, by faith, I believe that the Lord poured out his grace in an abundant measure. See, they received it. They received this word. He says, you know the commandments we gave you. You know. Friends, how many of you in here? I'm convinced that there's a good number of you in here who grew up in the church. You've grown up here and you've heard hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sermons. You know. You know what it says. You've heard it. And yet time and time and time again, you live in such a way as though you've not ever heard it. How is that so? The seed that gets sown on hard ground, what happens according to the parable? Who snatches it away? The birds, representative of the evil one. There's another path, it's a stony path. And for a while they hold on to that and it's great things, but when persecution arises because of the word, they quickly fade away. And then there's some seed that gets sown on a heart that's, that's the thorns, remember that? Where the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches... All the stuff of life crowds in around the word and chokes it, chokes it. The word is choked. And when the word is choked, friends, it's hard, it's hard to be producing fruit for the Lord and for his kingdom. I praise God that, that he shares in the parable that there are seed, that the seed that gets sown and lands on a, on a heart that is ready and receptive to hear. And that heart that's ready and receptive to hear, what's it do? It produces fruit. 30, 60, 100 times. These commandments here in verse 2, you know the commandments. These are orders direct from the Lord. And you know, he says, you know the authority behind these commandments, friends. The authority. He exhorted, charged, comforted them that they should walk worthy of God. And the word of God is not given as a nice add-on. It's not a boost to your Sunday morning. It's not something that's uh, going to give you extra credit with God when you open the Bible. The word is given that it might sanctify us. Jesus is praying to the Father in John 17. And one of the things he prays, he says, Father, sanctify them by your word. And then he says, your word is what? Truth. Sanctify them. Set them apart. Those who are following after me, he prays to the Father that they would be sanctified by this word. What then does that mean for us? Does it mean anything for us? I believe it does. I believe that we're to live differently according to this word, which is truth. 
be sanctified. When you receive God's word, you take it in as a soldier might take an order from his commanding officer. That's the idea. You're, you're quick to obey. You act on the orders because of who it is that's giving the orders. The word is to be obeyed because the king of kings has revealed his will through his word. He loves us and he desires us to walk in his prescribed path. He has shown you, O oh man, what is good. You remember that scripture? And what does the Lord require? He's shown us. He's given it to us. He's revealed himself to us. Friends, I'm convinced if this word actually became part of how we walked, we would look like exactly the things that he says in here. Salt, light, right? Abiding in the vine means that we would then produce what? Much fruit. We would be the peculiar people that he says in the word we're supposed to be. We would be a holy nation. We would be a, a royal priesthood. We would be a chosen people. It would show by how we live because our living would be in accordance to this word. And I know some of you are sitting there and you're going, yeah, but, but what about sin? Well, sin happens, sin happens, sin happens, and we're imperfect. Yes, that's true. Sin does happen. I'm not planning for sin to happen in my life, though, friends. I'm not planning for it. If it happens, I love the verse in 1 John 2. I have an advocate before the Father. His name is Jesus. I also have a promise that when I sin, I can go, 1 John 1, 9, I can go, I can confess my sin to the Father. He's faithful and just to forgive my sin and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. And now here I go, I'm walking the prescribed path again. That sounds like a good thing to me, friends. I believe his word to be true. Do you? Holy living matters to him. Are you operating today as a man or a woman under authority? Remember that Roman centurion? I love that text, the Roman centurion. He understood authority. He got it. He just simply said, Lord, I don't need you to come under my roof. Say the word. Say the word. And the Lord commanded him and said, I haven't seen faith like this in Israel. <laughs> just say the word. Is that the way we operate? Lord, just say the word. It's like Peter and, and, and the fishermen, they're in the boat. And they're, they're exhausted and tired because they hadn't caught anything the night before. And Jesus says, hey, take your boats out and, and lower the nets. <laughs> and there was a part of them. And you can, you, if you had been there, we can relate to what Peter and them are thinking, what they're going through. I did this all night. Come on, Lord. I'm a fisherman. You're not. But he says, nevertheless, at your word, I will obey. At your word. Is that how you operate? Do we operate from the standpoint of thus saith the Lord in how we live? When God's commandments are given, whether through the preached word or through your own personal study, do you receive them? Listen, do you receive them as directives from the king? Look at verse 3. What he's just described in verses 1 and 2 is what he now defines as the will of God, your sanctification. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. To give us a handle on it, I... I fast-forwarded in my, my catechism book, and I was looking at the, the question. I knew it was there. What is sanctification? I wanted to be able to give a definition. I think it does a nice job of giving us a definition. Here it is. Sanctification. 
the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more, there's that phrase, we're enabled more and more to die into sin and live unto righteousness. We're enabled more and more to die into sin. The biblical word for that is mortification. And to live unto righteousness. Those passages of scripture in Romans 6, 11, Reckon ourselves to be dead. Right? And Romans 6, 13. Talking about the members of our bodies. Understanding now that we have been made alive to God. Our members now are not slaves and instruments of sin but they are now to be used as instruments of righteousness. In fact, we look in the the text and we see in Colossians chapter 3, verse 9, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds and have, here it is, you've put on the new man, the new man who is renewed. He's renewed in what? He's renewed in knowledge according to the image of him, image of God who created him. He's renewed in knowledge. Look at Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 20. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him, have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. And here it is, be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God. In what way? In true righteousness in holiness. So we've got knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Sanctification is a renewal after the image of God in knowledge, in righteousness, in holiness. Characteristic of the new man. One who has been united with Jesus Christ. We talk about sanctification, we need to understand it's assuming that we are in Christ Jesus. A union with Christ is a necessity. It happens as the spirit of Christ is at work in you. In fact, we see that actually spoken in the second letter uh, to the Thessalonians. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren beloved by the Lord. Here it is. Because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel. You see, the sanctified man is a spiritual man, to use Paul's terminology in Corinthians 2, 3. The new man speaks to the one who has put off the old man. 2 Corinthians 5, Behold, all things have become new. The old is gone. One who is being renewed in knowledge and righteousness, and holiness. And as he is renewed after God's image, he begins to look, here it is again, more and more. There's a progression in his or her life that he begins to look a lot more like Jesus. Is it your desire, friends, to look more like Jesus each day of your life? And that goes to more than just an intellectual nod. But what does your life say? What's the evidence of your life pointing to? 
See, I think that you notice the difference in the way one talks when they are being renewed after the image of the Creator in knowledge and righteousness and holiness. His behavior is different. His attitude is different. His appetites, what he feeds on. The things that that, that really feed his appetite, things he is glued to, the things that he once was so attached to, those appetites are different in the renewed man. The members of his body are now used for righteousness' sake, not sin. Holy, set-apart living matters to God. Your sanctification is his will. This is the will of God, your sanctification. I'd like to to read just an excerpt from uh, Ryle's book uh, on holiness. Because here he speaks to this issue of sanctification. and, And says this much better than I could say it. He says, sanctification is the invariable result of that vital union with Christ which true faith gives to a Christian. The branch which bears no fruit is no living branch of the vine. The union with Christ which produces no effect on heart and life is a mere formal union which is worthless before God. The faith which has not a sanctifying influence on the character is no better than the faith of devils. It's a dead faith because it's alone. It's not the gift of God. It's not the faith of God's elect. In short, where there is no sanctification of life, there is no real faith in Christ. Well, this would be some hard words. True faith worketh by love. It constrains a man to live unto the Lord from a deep sense of gratitude for redemption. It makes him feel that he can never do too much for him that died for him. Being much forgiven, he loves much. He whom the blood cleanses walks in the light. He who has real lively hope in Christ purifieth himself even as he is pure. And sanctification is the outcome and inseparable consequence of regeneration. To be born again. He that is born again and made a new creature receives a new nature and a new principle and always lives a new life. Listen to this. A regeneration which a man can have and yet live carelessly in sin or worldliness like habitually is a regeneration invented by uninspired theologians, but never mentioned in the scriptures. John says, he that is born of God doth not commit sin, does not keep on sinning. He he doeth righteousness. He loveth the brethren. He keepeth himself. He overcometh the world. That's 1 John. And in a word, where there is no sanctification, there is no regeneration. And where there is no holy life, there is no new birth. This is no doubt a hard saying to many minds, but hard or not, it is simple Bible truth. It is written plainly that he who is born of God is one whose seed remaineth in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he is born of God. Friends, that's good. That's so helpful for us to understand as we look at sanctification, holiness. Holy living is his will. All that being said, look, at what Paul addresses in these next three verses, three, four, and five, and six, these next four verses. It's a list of connected items, and they're all dealing with actions unbecoming a new man, a saint, a follower of Jesus. Actions that are inconsistent with one filled with the Holy Spirit. Actions which, in short, ought not be. He says to abstain. Abstain from sexual immorality. Abstain from sexual immorality. 
Don't have anything to do with it. Keep from it. Abstain. If you abstain from something, you don't do it. You know, I was, I was reading and I heard this, this past week uh, a number and statistic. I don't know how accurate or true. Statistics sometimes are statistics. Uh, someone puts some numbers together and they give you a statistic. Well, uh, one of the statistics that I heard was how much money our, our country spends on in, in, in the education realm in terms of abstinence in the schools. Millions of dollars. Millions go to teaching abstinence. And I, I don't know that we need to go much further than just simply saying uh, it seems as though a lot of the education hasn't worked. Hasn't worked. But it seems the default is just throw more money into it and that'll help things. I got a better idea. How about we do what the word says? How about we, we live a holy life as he's intended us to live? We steward these bodies that he's given to us. We understand that these bodies have been given to us for such a time and that they are intended to look more and more like Jesus in terms of how they produce good fruit. What comes out? The heart, the attitude, the mind, the renewing of the mind. Abstain from sexual immorality. Abstain. Don't go there. Don't do it. When we think of abstaining, we think of uh, this, this whole idea, this whole concept of going against abstain, sanctification, holiness. He's given this list. And all three of these, the first one, second one, third, there's three of them. They're all three connected. But I believe they're predicated upon this first one. Abstain. Don't have anything to do with sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. You know what the word is? The word is porneia. The word that gets used in our English language for pornography. Porneia. Illicit sexual activity. Illicit sexual activity that is apart from what God has said to be true and good within the bounds of a marriage relationship. Because sex is something that God created and designed to be good within the boundaries, within the parameters of marriage. Paul was talking about something outside of that here. Something that the church at Thessalonica was evidently sinning in. They evidently had been thinking that it was okay to carry over my uh, previous way of living, my idolatry way of living. Part of that idolatry way of living evidently had something to do with the sexual activity. And it seems as though that they were doing some good things for the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet they had essentially carried with them over here and crossing over from death to life. They carried with them over here some of these other things. Oh, as you think about that, you think about, what, what is it? Has there been something in my own life that, that I, when the Lord saved me, is there something that, that I've, I've taken with me? Is there something from my old life I've carried with me over here that needs to be dropped and needs to be let go of? Needs to be repented of? Needs to be turned away from? That's what Paul is addressing here. Abstain from it. He says... 
Verse 4, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in, sanct- in sanctification, in honor. That each of you should know how to possess. You should know how. You should know how. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you have been renewed, you should know how to possess your vessel, your body, in sanctification. How, how should they know how? Because they've received the word. Friends, you should know how. I should know how. We should know how. We've been given the word to teach us how. To possess our bodies in sanctification and honor. And honor. Think about your body as a temple. And your body, how you use your body, you are honoring or conversely dishonoring the Lord. You are honoring or dishonoring another individual with whom you are participating in this illicit sexual activity. Each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Look what he contrasts that with in verse 5. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. The Gentiles who do, that, that key phrase there at the end of that, who do not know God. He's saying, you ought to know how to possess your your body in such a way that it results in sanctification and honoring to God, honoring to your brother, not in an unbridled, lustful passion like the Gentiles do. Or like perhaps Thessalonians, like your former way of living in idolatry. That kind of living is characteristic of one who does not know God. Don't use your body for that purpose. Look at the third one in verse 6. And no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter. In this matter. What's, what's the matter he's speaking of? In this matter, in this arena of, of sexual morality. In the arena of sex, he's talking about sex here. No one should take advantage of. Take advantage of. As we think about taking advantage of and defrauding. I was thinking about the, the, the text and, and looking at the the essence of defrauding. And he says here, he talks about this, this whole idea of the one who carries out uh, this judge, the avenger. And he's, he's going to make right, friends, these things. And we look at the third one here, this, this idea, huperbinane is the word I was looking for here. And it's the word who, to, to take advantage, to go beyond, to, to exceed the proper limits When you take advantage of another brother, you are exceeding the proper limits. You're going beyond what you're supposed to. The bounds, you're transgressing, going over. He says, no one should take advantage of another brother and defraud. Defraud has an idea in the mind of to claim more or to have more than one's due, to to selfishly attempt to gain more 
at all costs, by all means, disregarding the rights of others. You think about that in the context of illicit sexual activity. One who has a bent toward that. They're not thinking about anyone besides themselves. They're the only ones they're concerned about. It's a real danger, friends. Especially in the body of Christ. When there's something that has such a stronghold on you that you think nothing of carrying out your actions even though it's going to hurt and damage and dishonor that other person. I was reminded of a brother who came and preached a while back and he was talking about those strongholds. Remember what we're to do with those strongholds? Remember that image? He had the spear up here. Remember what that was? It was spear. Cast it down. And friends, this is, this is a, no, no doubt he's speaking here to the church at Thessalonica, but I may be speaking to someone in here. I may be speaking to someone here. This is, this is a real, real issue for you. Spear it down. Cast it down. No one should be taking advantage of and defrauding, cheating, damaging a brother, sister in the Lord. And he gives us, as if we needed follow-up, he gives us a why. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such. The avenger. Remember else one Romans 12, God says that vengeance is mine. God's the avenger. God is going to have the final say on all of this. And so he's warning them, and he has been warning them. He has testified, don't do this. Holiness matters to God. And, and Thessalonians, here is an area of your lives that I'm seeing that needs complete renovation. It is not acceptable to God to carry over this old way of living to pile up my idols or at least one of my idols that I've had for a long time and I'm going to carry it over here with me and I'm going to walk with God and I'm going to walk with God in such a way that's going to be pleasing to Him and yet still have my idols. Still have my sexual immorality. Now, many of us know that someone who is entangled in the web of sexual immorality is someone is typically not proclaiming it. Someone's typically not sharing it. It's typically something that's kept hidden. And therein lies the great danger. But yet Paul is writing as he's moved by the Spirit, there's something that evidently was seen. There was evidence. Paul is addressing this as he's moved by the Spirit. The Lord is an avenger of such. Look at verse 7. For God did not call us to uncleanness, or God did not call us for the purpose of impurity, but he called us in holiness. Holiness matters to God. Holy living matters to God. It's kind of, after he said what he needed to say, he, just, he comes back to that, that main principle, that main idea. Listen, holiness matters to God. Impurity, filthiness, those are different translations. That's not what he's after. He didn't call you to that. He called you to occupy this earthen tent in such a way that you give him glory and honor in your body. You steward it well. And then there's the conclusion in verse 8. 
therefore. He who rejects this. He who rejects this. The idea there of rejecting has in mind to do away with what has been laid down. To reject or to to set aside or to despise. He who rejects this does not reject man. Paul says, you're not rejecting me. You need to be, be in the know on this. If you choose to reject this, you need to know that you're rejecting God. This is not mine, Paul said. This is this coming to you direct from God, direct from his word. And by the way, it's coming to you from the God who's given to you, who's bought you with his blood through his son Jesus, and it's given to you his Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit to live in you, to live in such a way that reflects his holiness. If you've got an issue with it, You need to take it up with the Lord because this is his command. This is his instruction for your life. And friends, it is your instruction and my instruction even yet today. To live a holy life. We live in the world and and it doesn't take long to figure it out. We can drive down the highway and we drive down the highway and we see these billboards that are just, oh, they're they're mind-boggling. Makes you want to go a different direction just because of the, the billboard. It's filthy. It's unclean. It's impure. There are all kinds of images out there. Some of you, some of you have been here and some of you know that it takes one, two, three clicks and you are where you don't want to be on the internet. Please do not treat this lightly. Many strong men have been taken down by rejecting what Paul's talking about right here in these eight verses. This is no light matter. The proverb writer speaks of this too. The man who gets caught up in adultery. Illicit sexual affairs. Sin of a sexual nature. His reproach will not be wiped away. It's with him. The consequences with which you have to live. Friends, I beg you, as Paul does with the church. I beg you, pleading with you, not to live an impure, an unclean, a filthy life. Remember that the Lord went to the cross for you. No half-heartedness about Christ. Christ gave his all. And he calls each one of us to give our all. No unsurrendered items. Think of that baptism with the sword up in the air. No unsurrendered items in our life. There are no areas, no compartments that go exempt from his work in our life. We give it all to him. All to Jesus, I surrender. All to him, I freely give. Friends, that's the way I urge you and beg you to be living for Christ's sake. I leave you with this. May it be that every morning when we rise, we should say to ourselves, be ready for the Lord's return, for he may come today. And every night, our closing question should be, would I be ready for my Lord if he should come before I wake?
live in such a way that you are ready for Christ's return. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this reminder. Thank you for stirring us up to your truth. And Father, I thank you for placing before us your word in which you have said that sanctification is your will in our life. Holiness matters. You are holy. You are a holy God. You've called us to be holy just as you are holy. May we take you at your word. May we steward these receptacles that you've given to us, these earthen tents, in such a way that brings glory to you. I pray, Lord, we would not dishonor you, that we would not dishonor our brother and sister and take advantage or defraud our brother or sister in this place. But instead, we would steward this temple wherein resides your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray your Holy Spirit would have his way in our lives and that we would be changed. We would be renewed after the image of our creator in knowledge, in righteousness, and in holiness. And that, Father, there would be something about us that is entirely different than that old man we used to be. And, Father, I pray that as days go by, Father, we would be more and more changed, more and more looking like your son. Jesus. May it be true for everyone here who is in Christ Jesus. I pray this in the name of Jesus, who is our Lord and Savior. Amen.